Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege. Um, it's a privilege for me to share my testimony with you this morning. Pastor Phil, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I brought a full pack of tissues. Ugh, we're going to see if we can get through this one. A few of you know um, I'm an interior designer by trade. Um, and before you all ask me to pick out a paint color for your living room or how to plan your kitchen, I'm going to tell you right now, here's a freebie. Pick the color that you like, okay? Um, in my, uh, my career, I typically work in commercial office buildings. Um, I'm usually brought in to redesign a building that had a former purpose. The tenant had moved out and the walls and doors and the lighting and the materials, they're no longer serving a purpose. So I come in, redesign the space, and my goal is to breathe new life into the space and give it a new purpose. Uh, if you take this building, for example, a few years ago, these were three distinctively different suites, former businesses in them. And the business is closed and we came in and we reimagined the space. We tore down the walls and we cleaned and painted and added lighting and brought everything up to code. We rebuilt the areas that needed repair and we turned it into our church. I've learned that God is an interior designer too. When we invite him into our lives, he recreates us and gives us a new purpose. He helps us to repair the damage. He gives our heart a new coat of paint. He gives us a reason to turn on the lights and we become a new creation. But let me be clear, this does not happen in the 30-minute HGTV show that you see on, on HGTV. Um, tell me if you've heard this before. Uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. I struggled with this concept when I first heard the passage. Unfortunately, when I learned it, I thought, that someone who was saved, that there was a miraculous and instantaneous change. That suddenly, as a Christian, they were no longer tempted by sin. That their prayers were answered, their path was paved. That's the impression I got growing up. People who went to church were better than people who didn't. Church was an exclusive club for good people who were disciplined and were, were not influenced by bad things. I personally had messed up way too many times, and I needed to pay for the mistakes I knew better to do this or that. I'll never be a Christian. I needed to try harder, work harder, be a good person, and then maybe I'll feel worthy of being accepted at the church. But my thoughts were, my thoughts were flawed. When I was a freshman in college, I was really struggling. I had been accepted at Virginia Tech, so I was going to be away from home. I was competing for a slot in my major, there were 60 of us competing for 25 slots, and I was working myself to exhaustion. My roommate, on the other hand, had different priorities, not related to education, and on top of that, I was homesick. I couldn't help but feel completely overwhelmed and depressed and really not sure what to do. Luckily, I had a friend from high school who was going to a nearby college, and I reached out to him to have lunch and just talk it through with someone who knew me. He suggested, try a church. I figured, why not? What do I have to lose? I'll just try it. So I found a church off campus, and I went. And after the service, some sweet older ladies invited me down to the fellowship hall for some lemonade and cookies. 
in a very strange and confusing discussion, these ladies circled me and asked me if I wanted to join the church, not wanting to be rude. To these newfound friends, I said, sure. And with a swig of lemonade and a cookie, I was a church member. Upon their declaration of my membership, I found the closest exit and left thinking, I may have just joined a cult. Strike one, never going back there. I'm just going to suck it up and power through the rest of the semester. At the same time, my mom had taken a job at the Methodist Church back home, and she and my dad got very involved, and they joined the praise band. Being an only child, they were now empty nesters, but they were making friends and getting involved. And during summer break, I was, I was uh, home and was able to experience their new church as well. And they had made a great group of friends. My sophomore year, with a new roommate and a major declared, I made it. I was feeling a little more confident in myself, and my new roommate went to a Methodist church just off campus. She invited me to come with her, and so I decided to give it another try. The church had an adopt-a-student program, so my roommate's adopted family took us out to lunch and adopted me too. This felt a little less intense than the first church experience, and I was not one to pass up a home-cooked meal, so I kept coming back. Soon, our adopted mom asked if we wanted to join her in teaching second graders in Sunday school, our adopted little brother's class. I agreed because growing up, I was painfully shy and would never go to Sunday school class by myself. I'd much rather sit and color on the offering envelopes. <laughs> so I didn't learn all the stories and the songs as a kid, but I figured I can learn along with the second graders and catch up. In those early years of attending church regularly, I found myself coming into church with a problem or a lack of understanding, and the sermon just speaking right to me. It kept drawing me back. I picked up a study, a study Bible, and started learning more and more so that I could stay ahead of the second graders. But I found a place where I felt comfortable, and it balanced out the stress of my studies. The following year, I had another roommate that was involved in the Methodist student ministry on campus, and I continued to dip my toe into church life. Did I mention that I was painfully shy? Although my childhood, and all through my childhood and adolescent years, I was painfully shy, so getting involved with campus ministry was hard. I was so scared that I didn't know what I was doing, and this place um, would call me out. I was not one of those kids who grew up in youth group. This place was graduate-level youth group. <laughs> but eventually, thanks to my roommates, I made some friends, felt included, and could show up without being terrified that I would have to sit at a table by myself and feel like a complete outsider. God was setting up these relationships because I was going to need them later. Most people have a pivot point in their life, and mine was January 20 of 2000. I was back at school for my final semester, and back home my parents had plans to go out to dinner with friends. My dad went out to clear the snow from the sidewalk, and he suffered a heart attack. The paramedics could not revive him, and he died later that evening. He was only 52. That evening, I got a phone call, and when I answered the phone, I immediately heard my mom crying, and I assumed that my grandmother had passed away. She had been suffering with dementia for the last few years, and I knew her time was near. But when she said, Daddy, everything went blank. I honestly don't remember a whole lot after that. My roommate somehow got me on a plane back home, and my mom and my aunt met me at the gate, and that's about all I recall for a few days. 
my next memory was in the funeral home where I was too scared to even look at my dad because if I didn't see him, it wouldn't be real. Then I remember the sympathy cards pouring in from people from church. They brought us food. People were coming and going, but I was numb. We had made, made arrangements to have the funeral on January 25th, the day before my 22nd birthday, but it snowed. It snowed and it snowed and it snowed and it did not stop. We had to postpone the funeral and live in our grief for a few more days. Once the snow melted and we were finally able to have the funeral service, I remember sitting in the front row of the church facing the pulpit so that my crying was as private as possible. I had cried so much that my face hurt. My eyes were puffy, and I just didn't want to endure it anymore. I sat there numb, staring at the lectern. But on the lectern, I remember a white linen, a butterfly embroidered on it, and the word hope. I stared at the butterfly for the entire service. I heard the songs in the garden on eagle's wings being sung, the words being preached, and the Bible verses, but I just couldn't take it in. Strangely, though, as I sat there, I reflected, and while staring at that butterfly, I felt Jesus envelop me and assure me that everything was going to be okay. I was not alone, and I did not have to be strong, which is what everyone else was telling me to do. Be strong for your mom, they were all telling me. In this moment is when I feel like I gave up control of my life. I could not do this alone. I could not endure the weight of my grief. I needed Jesus to take this from me. Along with the shock and grief of losing my dad, my mom also lost her mother, my grandmother only three weeks later. And on top of that, we were also faced with the possibility of having to sell our house, which we had lived in for 20 years. But the church. As I said, my parents had started attending the church along the same time I did. My mom worked at the front desk, and they found a church family that welcomed them in. They had wonderful friends. My mom and I had an amazing support. Back at school, I had an amazing support system that rallied around me and helped me to get through that final semester. Despite the grief, I felt so loved and supported that I was able to complete the semester and graduate. Then after graduation, I came back to Maryland. I started my first job started regularly attending a church that my parents had joined. I got involved and continued with my learning of the Bible and growing my relationships within the church. It was a pretty traditional church and coming from college campus where everyone was my age to a church where people were at least 10 years older than me was definitely a challenge. I didn't ever really fit in to any group. I tried forming my own group which lasted a while, but young women my age were getting married and having children, moving away, and the group was always changing, and it was really hard to get traction. Meanwhile, as I was starting my career and navigating my, my way, hey, navigating my way through the professional world, I was also feeling like I didn't quite know where I fit in. I got involved in professional organizations, which, ten which tended to be primarily happy hours. I quickly learned that my shyness and my social anxiety was cured with a glass of wine. On top of that, I found a group of people who liked me and didn't know my grief that I had endured the year before, and I had a new identity. A year or so passed, and I was doing well in my career. My mom and I were healing and going through grief counseling, learning the dynamics of our relationship without my dad. This was when she decided that she would start dating. I tried to be supportive and strong, but I was still dealing with my grief. Another year had passed, and eventually 
I moved out, I found a roommate, and I got an apartment of my own. I continued seeking therapy, trying to cope not only with the grief from losing my dad, but also with the loss of what I thought my life was going to be like. I was going to church and believing in God, volunteering, working hard, but my life was not going in the direction that I thought. I became angry that God was not doing what I thought I deserved. I felt completely alone, lost, and abandoned. Depression was something that I had battled since high school, and it was becoming deeper and harder for me to climb out of. One weekend, I stayed in bed virtually comatose, overwhelmed by my depression. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it to Monday. My roommate was concerned enough to call my mom, who came and got me and brought me home. And the episode scared both of us enough that I started seeking medical help with the depression. After that, I moved home for a while continued to seek help through counseling, but never quite feeling like I had it figured out. I didn't know where to go or what to do. The world was moving on around me, and I felt completely stuck with no control over my circumstances. Not long after that, in December of 20, uh, 2005, my mom got engaged. And in February, she and my stepdad got married. And within a couple months, I now had a stepbrother, a soon-to-be sister-in-law, stepsister, and a bonus extended family and new friends. I had also started a new job, bought my first home, and it was a big year of transition. While I was happy for my mom, I was also struggling with my own identity. Despite regularly attending church, I was not in a relationship with God. I knew about him, but I didn't know him. I tried to honor him, but there was still so much that I did not know. I found my new identity in my career. I was successful at work and in my professional circle. I was doing pretty well in my mind, but in hindsight, I was living according to the world, and my, in my own ignorance, was taking me farther and farther away from God without me even knowing. I tried branching out, finding a new church, because after all, we had been through my parents' church. There was a new pastor with new ideas, and we felt pushed out and hurt. In addition to that, I wanted a church where I wasn't known as Priscilla's daughter. When my mom worked at the church, she knew absolutely everyone. I just lived in her shadow, and it was time for me to find a new identity of my own. Around that same time, my parents had new next-door neighbors move in. When they moved in, they had so many people helping them. I was not sure what to think of these people. The husband had a long braided ponytail, and we thought for sure they were some kind of hippies. Turned out they were members of the church at Trinity, and he was the children's pastor. The following December, they invited my parents to the Christmas cantata, and soon after, my parents started attending Trinity as their new church home together. In 2009, I lost my identity again when I was laid off. When I lost my job, I lost my self-worth. So much of me was connected to my career and my work ethic, and now I didn't matter. I couldn't work hard enough to get out of this. So I spent nine months unemployed. Thankfully, I was able to earn some money thanks to the network of people in the industry. And I did what I could to stay afloat. And through that time, there were people that were praying for me, mainly my parents, friends, and their church. Also during that time, I decided to take a leap of faith and join a young women's Bible study at Trinity. I met some very nice young women who I really connected with. And in 2010, my mom mentioned to me that Trinity was going to launch a new campus in White Marsh and that some of the girls from this Bible study were part of the launch team. I had kept in touch with a few of them, 
So I decided to attend one Sunday, about a month after they launched. I had never attended a church in a movie theater before. It was different, but it was cool. Everyone was so enthusiastic and friendly, and it was a really exciting atmosphere. The pastor wasn't like anyone I had ever heard before. He was a dynamic speaker and very real. He read words from the Bible differently in a way that I had never understood before. The thing that really hooked me was from that stage, this pastor confessed that he had a past that didn't align with my perception of a pastor. Wait, pastors are tempted too? Really? <laughs> that just sounded crazy to me. Well, that made me sit up and think maybe I was not too far gone. If the pastor can overcome his past, maybe there's hope for me. So I kept coming back. I knew that getting involved would help me get to know people. Since I always had a heart for kids, I asked if I could volunteer. I was the first official volunteer of Echo. Week in and week out as a mobile church, we set up floor mats and walls on the bottom of sticky theater floor. We all bonded over the process of setting up and tearing down church before the noon movie showing. The church grew so quickly that we had to get a bigger theater, and soon we outgrew the theater and moved to Perry Hall High School. Then out of nowhere, the pastor that I had come to love and trust and teach, teach me about God's love for us announced he was leaving, and my heart sunk. How could this be happening? Again, I just started getting traction, and again, another shoe drops. God, what's the deal? What now? Despite my instinct to walk away, I had a discussion with a family friend and a truly authentic Christian man who I respected very much around a campfire one night. He encouraged me to stick with it, see what God can do with this situation. He said, it got me to look at this in a new light. Have faith. See what God can do with this. I think it was about a year of an unknown future of Echo. A congregation dramatically changed, but there are a few faithful servants that stayed and volunteered every weekend, bringing carts, putting up stages, sound equipment, kids' ministry, setting up walls, floor mats, several times adjusting on the fly just to make it work. We stuck with it not knowing if it was going to work or not, but just trusting. After a long time, felt like forever, uh, Pastor Phil and Kendra showed up with their baby boy. They showed up to a church that was kind of hanging on by a thread. But those of us who stuck it out and believed there was a future for Echo had prayed for this family. The next few months and years were a new beginning. It felt like a part of something so much bigger than our church, that God was building us from the ground up. The fact that we were a mobile church and it felt like literally every week there was a new hurdle to overcome, it was stressful, but it really made us stronger as a team. We learned to trust one another, but most importantly, to trust God and everything would work out. We became a family. Building the trust that those connections was an essential foundation, and I had finally found a place where I felt at home. I was needed, wanted, and loved. Over the course of the last 10 years, I've grown exponentially in my relationship with Christ, and all the opportunities and materials that this church has offered to know God has saved my life. The more time that I spend with God, through sermons, through small groups, lessons, worship, I started hearing God's voice and learning his desires for me would have pushed away the things of this world, the stuff that other people listen to and watch, because that wasn't how I was going to learn what it meant to be like him, quite the opposite. I was more immersed myself. The more I immersed myself in the word of God, the more I started identifying things of the world that didn't please me anymore, because I knew it wouldn't please God. 
I heard somewhere, and it might have been here, that if you wouldn't watch it or listen to it while God's in the room, turn it off. It's been quite an evolution, and it's not done yet. But I am grateful for God's patience with me. The idea of salvation seems so simple to me. Merely acknowledging that I am a sinner, declaring that I cannot do this on my own, and asking God to come into my life, how could it be this simple? But it was just the beginning. My heart was hardened when my dad passed away because I had lost my protector. The one that understood me best. The one that provided for me. But then God stepped in and said, daughter, don't you know that I am the one who will provide for you? I will be your anchor, and I created you, so I know you best. I am so fortunate that I could rely on my earthly father. I had an earthly father to reference the characteristics of a heavenly father, a heavenly father who's so exponentially more capable of fulfilling my need for security, assurance, provisions, and most importantly, my eternal life. Thank you. There's so much of Mandy's story that, you know, it's not my story. I don't know what it's like to go to Virginia Tech University. I know nothing about interior design, which I'm sure is a shock to most of you. I didn't lose my, my dad. He is still very much alive and very much a part of my life. But the thing that I think I relate to most about your story, Mandy, is how your relationship with Jesus has been a gradual journey over time. There's certainly moments along the way where I had like, man, I had this moment with God where I was really aware of my sin. Or I had this moment of God where I was really aware of how desperately I needed forgiveness. Or I had moments with God where I acknowledged that my identity was shaky or there were things that needed to change. But it's been more of a gradual thing in my life than just like there was this one moment where, boom, everything completely changed in that moment. And I've been perfect ever since. It's been a gradual, ongoing, incremental, day-by-day journey of the Holy Spirit over a longer period of time changing me, changing the way I think about myself, changing the way I think about God, changing the way I think about others. And, you know, obviously it began at that moment of salvation, like you described, of acknowledging that I've, yeah, I'm a sinner, I am broken, I can't do this on my own, I need someone to help take this weight off of my shoulders and give me traction in life. It starts in that moment. But it's a gradual, daily, ongoing walk. I love that you said, when I look back over my life over 10 years, I can see the growth and progress. Maybe you're different than me, but I don't, on a daily basis, see change from one day to the next day. That's kind of hard for me to see. But sometimes when I look at my life over a few months, or especially over a couple of years, I can say, you know what, I see progress. I see progress. And I'm thankful that our walk with Jesus 
there are moments and then there's movement that happens over a lifetime. And so thank you so much for sharing. Take some courage to share your story in front of a group of people, some of whom you know and some of whom we don't know. But I know I have benefited from hearing your story today, Mandy. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I want to introduce you to our final speaker today. And I, I talk to you a lot about the three kinds of relationships we need to have in our life as believers. We need someone who's like a Paul to us, someone who... Um, we just trust that they have a little bit more spiritual experience than what we do. And we have enough of a, we're on a first name basis with those people that they can speak into our life. We can ask them questions. They can pray over us. We can seek their counsel. Um, we need someone like a Barnabas who's like a shoulder to shoulder, a friend, someone who is kind of in our similar place spiritually that we journey through our lives together. And I believe God puts Timothys in our life too. There are people who look to us to be a spiritual guide or a mentor to them. And uh, this man has been for me for more than a decade, one of those Paul figures in my own life, formally as an elder of this church, informally as a friend of mine that I've turned to for prayer, for advice, for counsel. And uh, I asked him if he'd share his story today. I knew, I knew bits and pieces of his story, didn't know the whole thing. And even just yesterday, he shared with me, he said, you know, I've shared my story lots of times in my life. But in, you know, 44 years of being a Christian, I have never shared my story in my own church. And so um, it's a treat for us to be able to hear from him today. Will you join me in welcoming Joe Werner as he comes to share his story? Thank you, Pastor. The chair is here because I have a bad back, not because I'm taking up residence for the next several hours. But we do have a challenge. The challenge is I have about 15 minutes to speak. Now, that's difficult. Not only are you all waiting for that food, but the person speaking to you is a native New Yorker who was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. So, by the way, half of you don't know what a phonograph needle is. That's the, one of the problems. So I'm going to put this in context for you. I'm going to tell you about myself. To, it's a little history, so we can put it into context, who I am and why, where I am today. So I'm the uh, second child of a second-generation Italian-American wife and a, uh, and a third-generation um, German-American German man whose family was all Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. I was uh, brought up in my mother's faith, my father when he married my mother. Uh, he was raised a Christian by a stepmother and even anticipated going into the ministry at one time. But anyway, he agreed to raise his children in the faith of my mother because and that's what that church required. And so I was brought up with a parochial school, two years of parochial school and religious instructions, and I, I was given sound, sound principles of faith in that church. You know, I had, I, had, um, I had respect for the clergy. I understood the things of God would be honored and, and revered. You know, nobody can take that away. So. But anyway, um, shortly after, and by the way, I, I learned recently from DNA analysis, my wife and I had that, our son, bought us those for our 50th wedding anniversary last year. And I turned out, I, I learned more about my father's family. It's all Ashkenazi Jews, which that may not mean anything to you. It means Middle and Eastern European Jews. By the way, who has the strongest genealogical line of any group of people in the world history. So it's studied very often because it has stayed homogeneous for thousands of years. But anyway, uh, I found out in my lineage, going back and building my family tree, that two of my great-grandparents were named Jacob, two of them, which translates into Israel for most people, that my great-great-grandfather, one aspect of the family, was, was named Moses, 
And the, uh, the other, one of the other great-great-grandfathers was Emmanuel. So I brought that to my wife's attention that I had a direct association with, with divinity. And she responded by putting burnt offerings in front of me at dinner time. So <laughs> I quickly asked her to stop doing that. <laughs> so shortly after my birth in New York, my parents moved to South Carolina, Dillon, South Carolina, where my father became manager of South of the Border. You're all, yeah, yeah, you were there. Come on, you got to say you went there because you got to put that on your bucket list. You got to. But that, by the way, it was just a small restaurant. It was a restaurant and a small gift shop at the time. But, if, but while we were there, somebody, my mother brought to my attention that there was a tent meeting and she was invited by her landlord, who I think was a, active in the Baptist church there. And she went because my mother was not adverse to any of that. And uh, we went to this tent meeting and my mother brought me forward to be prayed over by the evangelist. And he laid his hands on me and prayed over me. Would you like to guess who that was? Oral Roberts. So I say, wait a minute. Is this a manifestation that's going to happen some years later? You wonder if God's hands and everything? You betcha. So anyway, when I was about four years old, we moved back to New York, uh, initially, initially Manhattan, and then ultimately most of my childhood was spent in formative years in Brooklyn, New York. Um, anyway, the... Um, while we're in Brooklyn, um, I mean, I'm going about my business. I'm the younger of two children, and I, I became very independent as a result of the way that our parents raised us. They were, they were not helicopter parents by the least. In fact, they were absentee parents, to be honest with you. I was a latchkey child from the time I was like in the third grade. I would leave school at lunchtime, walk home, make my lunch, go back, you know, to school. And uh, I even learned how to swim because my father bought me a pass to a pool in Coney Island. And in the summertime, I was about 10 or 11 years old. I would take the subway by myself to Coney Island where I would jump in the deep end of the pool until I learned how to swim. And that's, that's true. And I ultimately became a swimmer on the Flatbush Boys Club in my high school with city champs and all that stuff. Um, so that gives you a little insight into my independence and how you know pretty much it was on my own. And everything was going fine. I was 16 years old. I was going to graduate three months, six months early, three and a half years, because I wanted to join the reserve group and the military reserve group when I turned 17 with my father's permission. And, but it turned out the only reserve group, and this was at 60, 1967, this is when the Vietnam War was just starting to heat up. We were there as advisors, but it was inevitable we were going to be in a full-scale war. And I wanted to join the reserves. I figured six months in the reserves, because that's what it took, training, and then I go on to college. So uh, turns out you had to be 19 to volunteer, because the only unit that had any vacancies in the New York area was special forces. And, uh, and by the way, I was afraid of heights, and here I was willing to jump out of an airplane. That, that makes no sense. Uh, but that didn't happen, and my two friends were going to do this with me. One joined the uh, Marines for three years, and the other one joined the Navy for four years. The one who joined the Marines never left the United States. The one who joined the Navy spent three out of four years overseas in dangerous duty. That's fate for you. So here I am, 16 years old. I figured, well, I'm just going to go on to college. And uh, something happened. My, uh, my father was visiting his mother-in-law, my mother's mother, in the hospital. This is eerily similar. Had just witnessed a nasty auto accident that got very, too close to him on the street. He ran into a wall. And while sitting there with his mother-in-law, had a heart attack. Spent six days in that hospital in cardiac care, only to have a fatal heart attack six days later. 
Unfortunately, a week after that, the grandmother, his mother-in-law he was going to visit, she passed from her problems, which we were expecting her to pass. So as Italian-Americans, we spent nearly two weeks in, in, in funerals. You know, that was the way it was done. So here I am, 16 years old, in a, in a, in a um, funeral director's car on the way to the funeral parlor to make arrangements for my father's uh, burial. And I look out the window, and I'm in New York City, Brooklyn, New York, and I see all the cars and all the people walking by. And I want to say, stop. Stop the world. The most important person in my life until that time is gone. You're not even notice, noticing. The question was, what, 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 what's unique about a human being if you can't even notice he's gone? Is it like sticking your hand in a bucket of sand, pulling it out, and then asking for evidence you were ever in there? You got that image? It just fills in. The second question I asked was, I had just presumed erroneously that when I got older and I wanted to make those presidential decisions like, well, who do you marry and how do you buy a house? And when you buy the house, what do you look for? And somebody wants to offer you a mortgage. What do you do about that? Well, my dad would be there to tell me. Well, he wasn't going to be there. Well, I got to tell you, at that time, I didn't get those answers. I didn't get those answers or any insight into that. And, uh, you know, here I am, I'm 16 now. I just turned 17 in January 1968, and I'm starting college. I'm starting college, and I'm working. I worked moving furniture through high school and college, and that's why I sit in the chair now, because I have a bad back. Needless to say, moving furniture is not good for you. So I, I continue through college. I graduate. By the way, I want kudos to the people, and, and the, um, the people of New York City and New York State who thought it was a good idea to invest in me and any other student back then, okay, to have a essentially cost-free college education. I paid $35 a semester registration fee. You could take all the, all the credits I wanted. How would you like that apple now today? It doesn't, it's not like that anymore. So I, I got to give kudos to them. They, they understood the, the, the investment. So here I am at 21. I graduate college. I, marriage, I marry the bride of my youth who's here, and 51 years later, we're still here. Okay, good thing. So I move on, and uh, I spend a year working because I wanted to go on to podiatry school, and I needed the money, and for other reasons, I worked a year. And then I got my first job during that year. I drove a cab in midtown Manhattan. Now, I even have the cab, I even have the hack license home, and I've thought about bringing it today, but it would be like show and tell. I still have that license, okay? And by the way, I had a motto when I was driving in New York City. If you don't like the way I drive, stay off the sidewalk. So, I was a nasty driver. <laughs> so I go to school, I spend four years in school, uh, reasonably low ra interest rates, didn't graduate with a huge debt, thank God, today it's impossible. I came to Maryland to do a residency in foot and ankle surgery, that's what brought me here. And um, I was doing fine, it was 1979, I was just in practice about a year. And uh, my, a neighbor in my professional building, a dentist, he says, I want to invite you to a luncheon. I said, okay. Well, what's the luncheon about? He goes, well, it's called Christian Businessmen's Committee, CBMC. I said, wow, great. I want to go in there, network, meet some businessmen, promote my, my practice. It wasn't, you know, it makes sense, right? Well, I get there, and there's a guy from IBM, and he tells us about his life, much like I'm doing over lunch. He gets to a point where he says, uh, he starts to talk about what we call the gospel, the good news. 
And he explains the gospel. And he, and he gives me three, among the other things he said, he had three verses he shared with me. Okay? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't take much to figure that out. You know, that was, by the way, for, for two years, nearly two years prior to that, I had a lot of sin in my life. I almost ruined my marriage all on me, okay? So that was, that was almost like, well, no arguing with that verse. And then, by the way, we stopped attending church. My father, who was the convert, by the way, converts are zealous. When he died, we stopped attending church, my sister and I, because my father would drag us every Sunday morning, and when he wasn't there to do it, we didn't do it. I had no commitment. This is 12 years later. So the second verse, he's all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. The second verse he shared, and the, the wages of sin is death. Uh, eternal separation from God. But he offered this salvation, he offered this remedy, he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in his son Jesus Christ. And at some point he said, okay, you've heard this, you hear, you hear what the problem is, you hear what the remedy is, I'd like you to bow your heads. We bow our heads. He says, I want you to consider what I said, and I want you to uh, consider maybe taking Jesus up on his offer. He probably didn't say it that way, but you understand he wanted me to get my head down and do a transaction with Jesus at that time, based upon based upon what I heard. So I put my head down. I said, wow. I said, well, what I've done the last few years hasn't been working. I don't think I really know how this is supposed to go. How are you supposed to lead and live your life? Um, well, he's not asking me for a check. He's not asking me. He's not going to give me cookies and juice and make me join a church. So what do I have to lose? And I reflected on my, my knowledge as a liberal arts student in college when I studied philosophy. And I remember one of the philosophers, Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, who offered, a, a, uh, offered this, this um, work called The Divine Wager. And it came down to this. He goes, well, if God and the gospel, the good news of who they say they are, and you invest in that, you got the world. You're a winner. You got the trifecta at the track. If he's not who he says he is, he didn't lose anything. What'd you lose? So put my head down and said, okay, I'm going to try you, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, you're going to make it evident to me. So uh, given my personality, there was a Bible study that this group hosted every Friday. Before I was ever asked to attend, I said to the guy, hey, I'm coming to your Bible study. Where is it? What time? And I jumped right into it. And the very, one of the very first scriptures I read, somehow, I know, not somehow, God directed me to this scripture, and it was Jeremiah. He says, for I know the plans. Still has that effect on me. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not calamity, that you may have a future and a hope. Bingo, this light goes on. The light is, this, is the thing called the Spirit of God. The Scripture speaks of the Word of God as sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow. That's, that sword cut into me, cut into me and gave me the opportunity to heal. I realized that 12 years earlier, when I asked those two questions, what is the significance of a human being, God answered me and said, okay, several thousand years ago, I wrote this for you, and I wrote it for you and you and you and you, that you can have a future and a hope. Don't you think I know what was going on? Don't you think I ordered it? And he, that 
I know, okay, so I have a significance. I'm more than just a hand in a bucket of sand. I'm very significant. Secondly, the question I asked was, where was that father that was going to help me in the future? And he, I've been here all along, became evident. I've ordered your steps for that too. I've looked over you. So those questions were answered. I look at that scripture about the sword of, you know, the, the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword from a surgeon's perspective, okay? Let me offer you this. You may not appreciate it unless you do surgery. So surgeons in the medical, medical world are considered arrogant. So what are you talking about? Well, if you, if you think putting a knife to someone is going to heal them, that takes a degree of arrogance. Appreciate what I'm saying, okay? The, in order for us to heal, we have to precipitate a process in your body that's a natural healing pro, uh, procedure. Physiologically, God developed this. It's called inflammation, okay? Inflammation is necessary in your body to heal the damages that occur. Too much inflammation is not a good thing. Okay, but, but inflammation in itself is a necessary issue that you have to have in your body. Well, you can't heal somebody unless you put the knife to them on a, on a diseased area. All right? And this is the whole point of the Word of God. He's got to get to the disease in you. Sin is a disease. The Word of God remedies that, cuts into it, and God heals you. And that was what happened 12 years later when he put the Word of God into my life in Jeremiah. Okay? Uh, by the way, I've had patients say to me, thank you for healing me, and I stop them. No, 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 no. Now, this is true. I said, I've never healed anybody. I said, God does all the healing. I just get to collect the fees. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. So I, it, ironically, and I didn't mention this earlier, if I remembered it, but uh, ironically, I, I had a couple. This was in December of 1979, and in January of, I, I'm sorry, it was November 1979. In December of 1979, a patient comes into the office who was sick. She had a problem with her foot, and she said, uh, I said, what do you, you know, how'd you do this? She goes, well, I've been standing for long hours at the Billy Graham crusade as one of the supporting choir members. Oh, yeah, well, tell me about that. And I had just been to this luncheon. And she starts to tell me about it. We spent uh, long times talking about it. By the way, I had her on the phone last night, and she says, you know, I used to, when I used to come in back then, the, your office staff didn't like it because we would spend so much time talking. And obviously, I'd be well backed up, but needless to say, that was then. So she, at some point, invites me to her church, invites me to her church for a Christmas cantata in December of 1979. Turns out it was the very first service performed on the Lutherville campus of a Trinity Assembly of God. Their first service was December of 1979. I don't know if this is still true, but the code to get into the church used to be 1279. That's because that's when the first service was. Is that true, Paul? Is it still like that? You know, you go in there and take stuff to bring here, don't you, in the middle of the night? That's what we elders do. So 44 years later, I've had a 44-year history with Trinity Assembly of God. Um, so that brings us to the point where I know God, I'm serving God, I'm studying the word. And at that point, that was it. My life has been fabulous all these years. Really? I must quote this famous theologian. You ready for it? His name is John Lennon. Life is what happens while you're busy making plans. 
yeah, I had plenty of plans and life happened and didn't always go the way we wanted. My wife and I wanted to have children. She, turns out we had to deal with infertility and we decided that's okay, adoption's a great thing. And we did. And we thought we'd have a child by natural birth and maybe one by adoption. So we wound up going from one child, we wound up adopting three at once, two, three, and four. So we, we had our lives living with three children. Uh, by the way, I have four grandchildren now, okay? By the way, you know what grand, grandparents, do you know what grandchildren are? They're God's gift to you for not killing you, your teenagers. Just remember that. And then, uh, of course, my health and everything else, I was pretty good until I hit my 60s and all of a sudden, bam, the big three. I had to deal with cancer, heart disease, and stroke. It's like, okay, what else you got, you know? God, by God's grace, I'm cancer-free. Minor stroke I had in an eye, healed, and the uh, heart disease is well under control, thanks to stents and whatever. So you know, life happens, and God doesn't promise you. He, he doesn't promise you you're not going to have these detours and these roads through life. But He's the promise is I'm there with you. So I want to leave you with a couple of things. I spent 44 years studying the word and that includes that study on a friday morning which 44 years later we still meet and we are we sometimes we get into some heavy heavy theology and and my gift by the way i have the i call it the gift of provocation the spiritual gift of provocation i provoke these guys to think differently about something i tend to take the take the position of devil's advocate so to speak say okay you guys got it all clear this is, how about this alternative interpretation or application oh okay so I'm, I'm that guy. So I know theology gets deeper and deeper and more complicated. I'm here to tell you I've reached a point in my life where I want my theology and my gospel to be simple. And I want to leave you with this. I, I'm leaving you with a story where Jesus heals a blind man. And afterwards, the powers to be come up to the blind man and accost him and say, you know, that man was a sinner. Or maybe his father was a sinner. And you allowed him to heal you? How, is he a sinner? And the man's response was this, whether that man is a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind and now I see. That's my theology, folks. Once I was blind and now I see. That's all I have to live by. Then I'm living what Jesus said. He said, you should come to me as children with the child of a faith. They're not asking if he's a sinner. They just know once they were blind, now they see. And I want to leave you with this gospel. I want to make the gospel real simple for you. I'm going to thank, I thank Dick Foth for it. He was a minister out of Washington. He left his place to take our place that we may go to his place. Wow. Come on. It doesn't get any simpler than that. And if you have trouble integrating that into your thinking, I'm going to leave you with one story before I give it over to the pastor. A little allegorical story about two men walking to, two men walking to a traffic court or a court. And uh, they're sitting there, and they bring a, a young man in shackles comes in before the judge. Judge says, son, you've been charged with doing 120 miles an hour in a 30-mile zone. And he goes, yes, your honor. He goes, how do you plead? He goes, guilty. And he says, well, he says, it's $100 or 10 days in jail. He says, I don't have any money. With that, the judge leaves. The bench comes down to the bailiff, pulls up his robe, takes out his wallet, lays down 10 crisp $10 bills, paying the fine. So one guy turns to the other and goes, I don't get this. What, what happened here? And he says, well, it turns to the judge is the defendant's father. Now, he's sworn to uphold the laws of this state. And justice requires him to exact the price. 
he ruled, he exacted the price, but when he came down here, he was, he was not the judge. He was the defendant's father. And he extended grace and mercy for his son. That's not difficult to see. You could see that really happening in, in the real world. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to let you in a little secret. I don't pray for justice. Justice is getting what you truly deserve. I don't pray for that. I pray for grace and mercy, which leads to peace. And I'm going to offer to you that if you look in your Bible and look at the salutation given by Paul in almost every letter Paul wrote, it starts grace, mercy, and peace. It doesn't start justice. We should be so thankful that God is just God, but he's produced the remedy that we don't have to pay in Jesus Christ. Pastor, I'm giving it over to you. Thank you, Dr. Joe. Can I ask the worship team to come on back? I, uh, it doesn't get much more clear than, than what you just heard Dr. Joe share with us. That story is so powerful, so simple to grab onto because that's the reality of, um, it's the reality of the human condition. We, we are guilty and we know we deserve some type of punishment for what we've done. We all know we've, we fall short. We say things like nobody's perfect to err is human. You know, it's just, we, we know that we know we're broken. And there's part of us deep down in our heart that we come to a place where we recognize those failures, those Bible calls them sins, those falling short of the standard that we know that it is right. We come to this place where we recognize, you know what, that deserves justice wrong deeds deserve punishment and the bible spells out for us that the wages of our sin is death it's eternal separation from god that's what we deserve we can't live the perfect life that jesus describes we've been studying that he kind of spells out you want to live a perfect righteous life here's what it looks like and you read through those 111 verses of the sermon on the mount and you're like wow that sounds really amazing and i could never maintain that perfect standard for my whole life but like dr joe said the beautiful thing is that the gift of god is eternal life through jesus not through coming to church, not through making a big offering check, not through starting up a nonprofit ministry, not through volunteering, not through doing good things. It's through Jesus. And so God can satisfy justice and grace at the same time. He can still look at our lives. And the fact of the matter is we have sinned and it deserves punishment. But because Jesus, our brother, went before us, and pulled out the payment from his pocket. And the father accepted it. God can be just. Because our, penalty, our, our sins have been paid for. But he can also be gracious. And pass along to us. What we didn't earn. And what we didn't deserve. And that is mercy. And grace. And forgiveness through Jesus. That's your opportunity today. And I know some of you have made that choice. Many of you have already made a choice to say yes to Jesus. Some of you made a choice to say no or not yet. 
Our role today is not to force you into deciding a specific answer, but to make the gospel clear to you and to give every man, woman, boy, and girl a chance to say yes to Jesus. So would you just, with that in mind, would you bow your head and close your eyes as we, we move to this final part of the service? In fact, even with every head bowed and every eye closed, can I ask our prayer team just to come in and take their places? Um, I want to give you opportunity. What do you, what do you do with what the Lord is saying to you today? You've heard Mandy, you've heard Joe, you've heard Kevin share about what the Lord's done in their life. The process was the same for all of them. They all came to a place where they believed and they repented. They believed that they had sinned and needed to be saved. They believed Jesus could save them and they believed Jesus would save them if they asked. But they also repented. They stopped insisting on being the kings and the leaders of their own life. They stopped living life by what they felt best and they surrendered their life. They forfeited independence for dependence. And they surrendered control and leadership of their life to Christ. And that's exactly what the scripture says. We have to believe and we have to repent. And if that's what's bubbling up inside of your heart today, that's God drawing you to himself through his Holy Spirit. Will you say yes today to Jesus? If so, just confess that to him right now. Use your own words and just tell him what's inside your heart. Tell that to him right now. Tell him that you know you've sinned. Tell him that you know you need to be saved and ask him to save you. And he will. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will apply Jesus' payments to your sins. You'll no longer be out of relationship with the Father. You'll be back in right relationship. You won't be an estranged child anymore. He's going to put you back in community with your brothers and sisters. He'll reveal to you an identity and a purpose and a hope that this world cannot take away because it's not of this world. If you'll simply believe and repent. Pastor, can you be more specific? Sure. You can pray a prayer that says, Jesus, I've sinned. I am sorry. I need to be forgiven because I can't pay off my debt to you. But I believe what I've heard today is true. I believe that Jesus has paid for my sins because he gave his perfect life in exchange for my imperfect life. When he died on the cross. He was my substitute. He took my place. I also believe what the Bible says. That he rose from the dead the third day. And that he's alive today. And so he's defeated death. And he's defeated sin. That's what I need. And so I invite you Jesus. To come and live inside of me. And make me new. Jesus your Lord. And I surrender control of my life to you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me new life. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. 
If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.